Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts. We're going to finish up chapter 1. We kicked off this new teaching series last weekend, Easter Sunday, How It Changes Everything. And today we're going to talk about living in between. Let me give you the thesis statement for this uh, whole series. We'll probably take us all the way to the end of the year with this series. Quite uh, a long book, but it's uh, packed full. A lot of great insight. The thesis statement for it is this is about really the, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts and lives of the people of God, making an impact in this world for God. I'm convinced of this, and that is you cannot meet the resurrected Savior, Jesus, and remain the same. There is something that happens to your life when you encounter Him and then you're naturally going to want more of him and to walk in vital union with him. Uh, a verse that always, around this time of the year, it always kind of stands out to me. It's the verse that I prayed last week in Romans 8, 11. It says, if the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. That's pretty profound. If you have made a confession of faith in Jesus, his Holy Spirit dwells in you. And, uh, and that's what this book is about, the book of Acts. These folks encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they were never, ever the same since. It so revolutionized their lives, they in turn went out and began to make an impact in the world around them. And so 2,000 years later, it continues to rock people's lives. And um, it's interesting, let me bring you up to speed here on this, the story where we are, the first half of the first chapter of uh, the book of Acts here, just when the disciples thought all hope was gone. Guess what? Jesus rises from the dead. And it's amazing. And then he hangs out with them for 40 days. He gives them many convincing proofs that he's alive from the grave. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. And then he does something. He commands them to stay in Jerusalem. I want you to go back to Jerusalem. I want you to stay there until this promise happens. And we're going to talk more about it next week, but the promise is found in Acts 1.8. you guys remember it? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word power is the Greek word is dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to is so empower you and take control of your life in such an unbelievable way that you will be willing to be witnesses. The word witness literally means martyr. You will go to your death proclaiming my name. And they did. And millions since have done that. And just talking about the, the change that he brings. And then just as soon as he said that, he hung out with them for 40 days. And then suddenly he's gone again, ascending into heaven with, with the promise of returning one of these days just as he, he left. And so what we have here is that you, we've got um, 10 dozen, 120 disciples, as we will see and as we will read, and they're living uh, in between the promise and its fulfillment. So they're living in between this promise and the fulfillment of that promise. So certainly they had to have been sad about what they had lost in him, but also a bit anxious about the future. Now this is what we need to understand as we head into our teaching this morning, that living in between is seldom an easy place to live. And it may be in between jobs or in between houses or in between relationships or in between medical appointments. Just talked to a young man that attends here, Desert Breeze, and he had been diagnosed with uh, cancer. He's in his early 20s. 
diagnosed with cancer, bought, uh, fought it, battled it, and got a clean bill of health. And then he just went back in this last week, and once again, there it is. So he's in between. God, I thought maybe you had healed me, and now what's up? Do I need to get a second opinion? He's kind of grappling with these issues. Maybe you're there. I know we've got a number of people that are there. They're struggling. They're working through the issues of their life. Living in between. Living in between medical appointments, chemotherapy. Or living in between could, be, could also be just waiting for an answer to prayer. I mean, you've been praying about this particular thing in your life or a person and just like, what is going on? Is anything going to happen? Or maybe you're just living in between a dry, difficult place spiritually. It has been a long time since you have, you have, you have sensed his presence. It's been a long time and you're going, man, I have felt so spiritually dry. You can be in that in-between, living in-between. Or maybe you're just a brand new believer. We had quite a number of people confess faith in Jesus for the first time last weekend here. And you came back and you're saying, okay, now what next? What do I need to do? I'm ready. So you're living in between. So how do you get through those in-between times without crashing and burning? How do you do that without throwing in the towel? How do you do that without hitting the eject button? How do you stay the course when it seems as though nothing is happening? Because that's where they are. They're living in between. He made the promise. Jesus exited. So now what do we do? We're kind of waiting. We're hanging out. What's going to happen? So that's where we're headed with our study here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's go before the throne of grace once again and invite God's presence and power to speak to us this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name through the power of your Holy Spirit who is here with us right now. Speak to us through your holy word. Forgive us for being impetuous consumers who quickly give up if we don't get instant gratification, teach us how to live in between your many promises. God, we hold in our hands a book that has thousands and thousands of promises, but we're so quick to hit the eject button and not wait for your work in our lives. So help us to learn to live in between your many promises and the fulfillment of those promises in our lives. May we be reminded of what it tells us in Galatians 6, 9, that we are to not grow weary in doing good. God, I pray for, there, I'm sure that there are many here this morning that are growing weary in doing good. Because as your word says, for in due season, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Lord, let us see you more clearly this morning and experience you to the depths of our hearts. Transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Here's where we're going. I'm going to read the text completely through. And we're going to talk about living in between involves two things, keeping your heart appropriately motivated, and then secondly, not neglecting spiritual disciplines. That's what we find them doing. Let me begin reading chapter 1, verse 12. I'll read to the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, notice the list here of disciples. It's kind of in a different, in a peculiar way it's written compared to the Gospels. Starting with Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together 
with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Really quite interesting. We'll come back to that. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And notice this next section is parentheses. So the writer here, Dr. Luke, is going to go into some extra detail. Uh, he's a very detailed guy, obviously, being a doctor. Listen to what he says here. The company of persons was in all about 120. And then he kind of breaks out of that. And he's going to go into some more parentheses uh, comments, kind of giving us more insight into what's going on here. And, and said, so this is Peter stood up and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. I want you to take note that Peter does not say anything negative about Judas. He doesn't uh, hammer Judas in any way. He really has a heart for Judas, though he betrayed Christ. And verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, here's the parenthesis part. Now, this man acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness in falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Thank you very much, Dr. Luke, for giving us those details. It's interesting. So him being a doctor is going to give a little more specific detail there. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So that's what they're working to do here is to replace Judas. So one of, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. So there, he's kind of spelling out the, the requirements for this, qualifications, verse 23, and they put forward two, so they looked on the list, they looked, they all came together, and they put forward two, Joseph called uh, Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. By the way, this is the last time you're going to actually see them ever cast lots again. So it's not necessarily a, a principle, though. They didn't know which one to choose. They were both equal, good candidates. And so this was the route that they took. And I, I don't suggest casting lots, but in this particular situation, it was, it was appropriate for them to do this. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thus the ending of the reading of God's holy word to us this morning. And that's the end of chapter 1, and we head into chapter 2 next week. Pretty significant uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. You're not going to want to miss that. But let's talk about what led up to that. What did they do to kind of prepare themselves, to pre prepare their hearts for uh, what was happening, what, what God wanted to pour out into their lives. Here's the first thing that we learned from this. Keeping your heart appropriately motivated. Living in between involves, first of all, keeping your heart appropriately motivated. What does that mean? Let me give you the first fill in the blank here. It's not the quality, but the object of your faith that saves you. 
Now, I can draw that from this text, but also from the fuller uh, context of, of Scripture, certainly. But when you look through the names here that we listed, they're really quite interesting names. Did you notice who was at the top of the list? And that's not typically where you find that in the, in the gospel accounts when they list the apostles or the disciples. Guess who's at the top of the list? Who is it? Peter. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Now, after what Peter did, you'd have thought that he would be on the bottom of the list or not even on the list. But, but he was at the top of the list. Why is that? Well, I think it's because they understood Jesus forgave him. He's kind of restored back into the fellowship, back into community with him. And, and he also is the one that steps up and begins to kind of lead the whole 120, which I find interesting. And so uh, certainly he has his struggles, and you're going to see further struggles. I mean, as you read throughout the New Testament, you see that he still struggles with some things in his life. You'll also notice that there's uh, in that list there's a number, but you remember Thomas? What was his nickname? Doubting Thomas. So he's got his own quality of faith and struggles that he's got. And then what was really interesting is that it mentions the women here. The women were the primary uh, financial supporters of Jesus. Not only that, they actually exemplified more courage than all the guys. Did you know that? That they were the ones that, uh, that they were at Jesus' crucifixion when the boat was sinking all the... You know, rats ran, you know, so to speak. They kind of like, they, were, they all left. They fled like a bunch of rats jumping off of the sinking ship, so to speak. I mean, that's what a lot of the, the, the disciples did. They were hiding out. They were frightened. They were, and here the women are there at his crucifixion. And they're also the very first ones to go to the tomb. And what we see here at the very front end is that the women, and in the story of Jesus, play a very significant role in this story of the kingdom of God in a very male-dominated uh, environment. Women didn't have any rights. They were treated just like uh, cattle, animals. So it's really quite interesting. The equality, the amazing equality that the gospel brings to people's lives. And, is, and, that, and they actually show more courage than the men. I see that a lot of times in women's lives. My wife, man, she has a sensitive, sensitivity to the voice of God, unlike I do. In so many different ways. And so it's pretty amazing. And then you've got, look at this, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time that you will see her in the New Testament. And she's on her knees. She's on her knees before God, praying to the Father through her Son. And then what's really amazing about this list are the brothers of Jesus. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It tells us in John 7, 5 that they didn't even believe in him. And then in Mark 3.21, they tried to do an intervention on him. I mean, they thought he was out of his mind. Yeah, that's Jesus. That's our brother. He's, his cheese slid right off his cracker, man. We don't know what's going on here. He's all messed up. And Mary was right with him. It's like, yeah, they tried to come and get, you know, get a hold of him. Said, uh, he's, he's messed up. And now they're gathered with this 120. What would make that change? Why would they become, you know, just changed by that and actually be praying to the Father, through Jesus' name, the resurrection. <laughs> it's kind of hard to deny that your brother is truly God when he comes back from, the, from dead, you know, from the grave. And, and, and that validated the, his deity and what he said. So, so when you look at this, and I was studying this, and I won't certainly take the time now, but I, was, I could see a good, a good Easter message coming out of that. Just the names. 
And the difference that this resurrected Lord and Savior made in their life. That's why I said you cannot, you cannot encounter the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and remain the same. You are no longer suited for a normal life. You encounter him, your life is changed. And you continue to walk in vital union with him. Wow, it changes everything about you. It's, it's a wonderful life. It's the most fantastic life there is. Not the easiest life, because most all of these all give their lives. They are literally martyrs. They give their lives for, for this resurrected Savior and King. But they do that with the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see among this list, I mean, you've got, uh, you got all different quality of faith. But, but guess what? They all, they're all going to have the Holy Spirit unloaded on them. And then they're going to go from here. And there's going to be thousands and thousands of people that uh, are they're transformed by the message that this small group proclaims. And so it's not the quality, but the object of your faith that saves you. I heard a great illustration to help me to understand this more clearly this last couple of weeks from the Gospel Coalition. It was Tim Keller. He was teaching there. It's from the 14th chapter of Exodus. You guys familiar with that, that particular story where the nation of Israel is crossing the Red Sea? Remember what was going down in that story? The nation of Israel had just been uh, released from Egyptian bondage. And they come up to the Red Sea and they go, oh, what do we do now? And they look over their shoulder and guess who's coming on their tail end? They see this dust of... They see this dust cloud behind them and there's all these chariots from Egypt. They're going to come and kill these folks and they're trapped. And uh, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and Moses is you know, talking to God and they work through this and he parts the Red Sea and the Red Sea parts. And so they're going through the Red Sea and the illustration was this. Can you imagine the, if you were to begin to walk with the people, you'd have probably two different, we'll put them into two different categories. You'd have people that are going through the Red Sea and they're looking at the walls of water that are piled up on each side. And there are some that are going, wow, praise God, this is amazing. Thank you, God. We praise your name. And then there's probably another group that's going through there looking at the wall of water on each side going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Now, which category, which group would you be in? You know, see, my tendency sometimes when I face difficulties, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. See, I don't want to be there. I don't want to do that. I, I want to be the type that's going, wow, this is amazing, God. Look at you. Look what you're doing in my life. I want to be out on the bow of the boat, on the front end of the boat. That's the bow, isn't it? Okay. The bow of the boat, out there with the, with the, the air blowing through my hair, whatever hair I've got, whatever little hair I've got, okay? I just want to be up there going, yeah, right in the middle of the storm. Bring it on. God, because you are for me and not against me. You're just taking it on as opposed to trying to tie myself to the mask and hanging on for dear life. We're going to die. We're going to die. Well, guess what? The Red Sea, they all made it through. They were all saved. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. You're going to be saved. You can ride on the bow of the boat and go, bring it on, man. Or you can tie yourself to the mask. Or you can freak out. You can white knuckle it all the way to heaven. He's going to get you there. He loves you. You're secure in him. Did you know that? There's amazing security in him. So you can either white knuckle it or you can just say, God, my life's in your hands. You're going to take care of me one way or the other. And I'm going to celebrate your goodness. And I'm going to put on display your glory. So, so what category do you tend to find yourself in as you're going through difficulties? And then how do you get to the next how do you get to the place to where you have that increased quality of faith? See, that's my question. How can I narrow the gap between my spirituality and my reality? How can I narrow the gap, I call it the gospel gap, between what I, 
what I believe and how I behave. Well, that's the next point on your notes. Getting to know the object of your faith, Jesus, will increase its quality. You'll notice one thing you don't get from me here. I'm going to give you some six easy steps to a more abundant life and, you know, kind of moralistic kind of a thing where you kind of go through this process. We don't do that here. It's about focusing on Him. It's, a, it's always about Jesus. It's always about getting to know Him. It's always about walking with Him. And that's how you do it. You've got to fix your mind and your heart on Jesus. Now, if you're ADD like me, spiritually speaking, man, there's just tons of distractions all around us, isn't there? How many find yourself really distracted? Yeah. I mean, spiritually, I, I'm so ADD spiritually. It's like I'm, I've got so many things going on in my mind and my heart and my life and everything. And, uh, and it's so hard. And I have to regularly re, recalibrate, recalculate, refocus, focus, focus on Jesus. Getting to know the object of your faith, Jesus, will increase its quality. I, I woke up this morning with, uh, I don't always wake up like this. I wish I did. Maybe the older I get, the less I wake up like this. But I think it's because it's just old age, a lot of things. But uh, I woke up and just, man, I was higher than a kite. One, because I, I drank a lot of coffee last night and it wasn't the sugar or anything like that. But I was just higher than the kite. I had this overwhelming sense. It was almost like God was telling me, hey, uh, if you have me, what, what, what do you need to sweat? In fact, I wrote it down. It was kind of like this. If you have Jesus, then what more do you need? If you have Jesus, then what more do you need? That was what I was thinking. And that's what went over my mind. I was going, yeah. If I have Jesus, then what more do I need? Now, either it is that you don't have Jesus or you have Jesus and you just don't realize what you have. Do you realize what you have in Jesus? No, no, I mean really, really, really. And I don't always live there. I don't always live at that place, that pinnacle of really understanding all that He is for me, that He is for me and not against me and all that I have through Him. I don't always live there. I wish I lived there more. And there's a lot of reasons why we don't, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but, but for the most part, I don't. And man, I just woke up, and this is what went through my mind this morning. And, and it's interesting because my circumstances were not conducive for me to experience this. I just, I, I woke up this morning... That I had an overwhelming sense of His presence, Him working in my life. And I wish I, I, wish I could say that that happens every week. I spend the, you know, a couple days before I get up here every weekend because I push the, the week pretty hard. And then when I hit Friday and then Saturday, usually I try to, try to do my Sabbath on Friday. And usually it's just feeding myself everything that I can eat on, spiritually speaking, to get my place where, where, where I have that sense of His presence in my life. And what I'm talking about here is that we all know that God's Word tells us that He will never leave us or forsake us. That's an objective truth. But what I want is a heart experience based on that objective truth. That's the Christian life. But oftentimes I don't have that heart experience that is consistent with that. It doesn't mean that He's not there. It's just I don't have a sense of that. I have it, Maybe I'm going through a dry time or there's something going on. I wish I had more of those, but I don't. But I'll tell you what, this morning, this morning, yes, unbelievable. If you have Jesus, then what more do you need? Some of you are listening, well, what's the big deal about that little statement? Well, it's one thing to say that statement. It's another thing to really know it in your heart that I have him. He is with me. And to have that objective truth of God's Word become a hard experience. And, um, and if you have Him, if you have Jesus, then what more do you need? 
Do you understand what that means? Do you understand? Do you, do you really have Jesus? Have you made a confession of faith in Him? And are you walking in vital union with Him? And as that song we sang, my heart, my heart longs for you. Nothing else will do. See, that's, that's normal Christianity. It's just like, ah, oh, I want you, God, more than anything. I don't want it just to be uh, this boring, robotic thing that I go through and quote scriptures and all that. I don't want dead orthodoxy. I want a hard experience. I want to know you. I want you to be more real to me than, than anything that I face. See, that's how you get through the difficulties of your life. How do you, how do you resist temptation? Because he's sweeter. His goodness is better than the temptation. That's how you overcome temptation. How do you overcome trials? Because he's bigger. He's greater. Well, the reason why we cave into trials and difficulties is because we, we don't see how great he is. That's why we need him. We desperately need him. My soul longs for you. My heart longs for you. Nothing else will do. When you get to that place, that's normal Christianity. You've had a, a bit of a taste of him and you want him. In fact, that takes us to the next point. It's once you've experienced his presence, his absence is unbearable. Now, here's what's interesting. This 120 had to have been like a bunch of kids having to go home after spending a you know, summer at camp. <laughs> That's about all I could really think of as I was thinking about how they felt. There was just something in them. And only worse, but it's like being on a retreat. How many have ever gone on a retreat? Man, it was, the, it was a high. It was like, whoa, that's fabulous. A women's, men's retreat or whatever. And it's just like fantastic. And then you've got to go back to reality. You've got to come off the mountain, come back into the desert. You know, usually when you go on these retreats or vacations. You know, my vacations, typically when I take a vacation, it's, it's meant to just... I spend a lot of time in prayer and meditation and reflection and, and uh, I just I spend a lot of time close to the Lord and really walking with Him and just filling up my heart, setting my heart under the fountain of His love and just experiencing Him. And I'm telling you, when you've... I almost can't even say this without crying this morning. But once you've experienced His presence, His absence is unbearable. I'm not saying that he's not there. It's just that you don't have that hard experience. It's not, it's not happening. You feel that disconnect. And yet Jesus promised them in the upper room, part of the upper room discourse, part of that is found in John 14, 16 through 18. He says, I, I will not leave you as orphans. I will ask the Father to give you another helper to be with you forever. So what he's saying is that just as I was with you, another of not a different kind, but, a, but another of the same kind, just as I was with you, you will have the Holy Spirit with you. That's, that's amazing. So as if I was with Jesus, walking with him, hearing him, watching him perform miracles, doing all that he did, being captivated by all that he was and his amazing love, heart smitten by his beauty and glory, the glory of God being demonstrated through the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be with you just like that, is what he's saying. Wow. And in fact, here's the next point. An awareness of his presence is a sign. An awareness of his absence is a sign of his presence in your life. An awareness of his absence. So when you, when you don't have that sense, it's evident that he's working. Think about that. Otherwise, you wouldn't long for him. See, that, that stirring up that appetite within you for God? In fact, even as I've been talking, some of you are sitting kind of like, yeah, I want that. 
Oh, I long for that. That's not me. It's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. He's drawn your heart. He's drawn you. He loves you. So when you don't have that sense, and you know what I'm talking about. Maybe if you don't, man, I pray that you would experience that in some way. I'm not talking about just all feelings and experience, although it's, it's something where this becomes real to you. And that's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how else to explain it. But you've got to have the Word of God in you so that he, the Holy Spirit can make that real to you. He, he, his, his Word burns bright. We're going to talk about it next week, about that Spirit-filled life. What is that about? What does He do in our lives? How do I know that I'm really spirit-filled? How do I know what's happening in my life? And he's, what he's telling us here, this is how we can kind of prepare ourselves or to kind of set ourselves up, so to speak, so that we can experience him in our lives. And so an awareness of his presence is a sign... I'm sorry, an awareness of his absence is a sign of his presence in your life. And though we have the Holy Spirit, you will have highs and lows in your experience with Him for a lot of different reasons. And some of the reasons why I have, I have spiritual lows is because I'm, I drive myself too hard physically. And it's, it's actually a, a spiritual problem. But, I mean, there's a lot... Of, and I don't want to be reductionistic. I don't want to be simplistic here because it's not always... It's not always... There's a lot of... It's multidimensional. There, there are spiritual, physical, emotional, intellectual issues in our lives and a lot of times why we don't have that sense of His presence in our life. I know this for me, though, that I push myself so hard. I'm a workaholic and I'm very performance-driven. And because of that, I wear myself out. I don't take enough vacations, to be quite honest with you. And I've been, I've been here on this last run. I've only missed one Sunday probably in about seven to eight months where I've taught regularly. I don't typically do that. I don't know why I did it this time. But, uh, but I started looking back on it. I started kind of feeling the burn as I was looking at what I was doing. And I realized, and what happens, and that comes out of a heart that's not learning to rest in the Sabbath rest of Jesus. What that means is that my identity must be in who Jesus says I am and what he accomplished on the cross, which therefore gives me the ability to be able to have better boundaries physically. Otherwise, we find ourselves driven hard. How many would say that you'd probably drive yourself too hard? Show of hands. Okay. There's way too many of us here, isn't there? There's a lot of us. You know what that is? You're not, you're not, you don't understand the Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is, I just rest in you, Jesus. My identity's in you. And my identity is not based on my performance. My performance comes out of my identity, and I'm not trying to achieve my identity through my performance. There's a major difference between the two. So I have to keep coming back to that as God continues. It's called sanctification as God continues to work in our hearts. So keeping your heart appropriately motivated. You don't do it because you have to. It's all about want to. You've tasted of His goodness, and you want to experience more of that in, in your life. You want to keep Him at the center of your life. You don't want to be... Uh, uh, motivated. You want to, this is what you want. You want to be motivated out of a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, not out of a heart that's motivated out of fear and pride. That's called actually common virtue. We're talking about true virtue, a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. So you've got to look at your heart. Why do you do what you do? Why did you come to church today? I hope that it's because my heart is smitten by you, Jesus. I want more of you. My heart longs for you. See, that's, that would be appropriate motivation. If you came for any other reason, then you're probably, it's more of a common virtue and it's not going to last. It's not going to last. So, this is how you help it to last. Next one, neglecting spiritual discipline. So, living in between involves keeping your heart appropriately motivated and then not neglecting spiritual disciplines. 
So they're, they're living in between here. And so here's next fill in the blank. Activities, so spiritual disciplines, and they're personal, but we're only going to look at community spiritual disciplines because that's what we see them doing here. They're activities that increase my capacity to experience the presence of God more consistently, leading to greater levels of maturity. So they're activities, so they're things that I do that increase my capacity to experience the presence of God more consistently, leading to greater levels of maturity. Okay. There is a major difference. Here's the next couple of films. There's a major difference between trying and training to do something. Anybody watching NBA playoffs currently? Anybody? Okay. Three people. Sorry. You were all pretty excited about that. Actually, you know, there's... I kind of watch them for probably different reasons than for most. I like to watch the uh, Lakers get beat. And so, huh? Right, you're, not a, you're not a Laker fan, are you? You're not a Laker fan? Okay, good. That's good. I didn't want you to rush the stage here and try to beat me up before, before I finish the message. But uh, any Laker fans here in the house? Oh, are you? That's very bold. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I won't pick on you. But uh, because your husband looks like he could probably take me. So uh, um, uh, where was I going to go with that? I was going to make a point and now I'm really confused. I got distracted just for a minute. But oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to watch it in the NBA. So there's a couple guys in, in, in Kobe Bryant. I'm sorry. But Kobe Bryant, I don't really like the guy that much. And... Uh, Although I do love him and I want him to come to know Jesus. But um, I thought I'd just throw that in there to make it sound good. <laughs> that never, never even crossed my mind until I just... We got a Laker fan sitting out here, so I better be show Jesus to everybody. Huh? Boy, I'm digging a hole this morning. You know, it's interesting. The first service, I dug such a deep hole. I said, we're not going to use that one, so we'll use the second service. And I don't think we'll use either service now. I'm kidding. But uh, Kobe and another guy that I, I struggle with, and maybe it's just because they're such great basketball players, is LeBron James. And so I kind of like to watch those guys get beat. But, but I'll tell you, well, here's my point. Okay, I'll get to the point. Cut to the chase there, Pastor Ray. Here's the point. Those guys just didn't show up to their team and begin to play. They didn't do it by trying hard. They have years. They are the caliber of player because they have had years, their whole life of training. And they're phenomenal players, there's no doubt about it. But if you were to look at their, uh, their workout program, their training, it surpasses most of the average basketball player guys out there. Did you know that? It's amazing. Here's what I'm saying. You're not going to experience more of the presence of God in your life and experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control by being inspired here by one message on a weekend service, run out of here and go, I'm going to take the world, praise God, I'm going to be more loving. And not, not, not going to last, it's not going to last for very long because it's not going to happen by trying, but it's going to happen by training. And it's going to take some time and it's day in and day out, week after week, as you develop these disciplines that stir up within your heart greater appetite for God and you develop habits that have made a major difference in my life. And I'll tell you what, I've spent a lifetime pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and through spiritual disciplines. And I'm not where I used to be. I have a sense of His presence now unlike ever before, but I'm not where I want to be. There's way too much of Him to still get to know 
In fact, for all eternity, we will have a chance to get to know him. But you're not going to overcome your, your habits, the issues in your life, have a better marriage. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever mountain you keep circling, whatever it is that you're, you know, you're wandering around in the wilderness when the, when the promised land was within about 14 days, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why is that? Many of us do. But it's through the spiritual disciplines, these things that we do. It's not about trying hard, but it's about training. And let me give you four things that they did in between. But before I do that, let me, let me give you an, an interesting, interesting quote here. Uh, there's a journal. It's called the Journal of Happiness Studies. And they're, using, they're trying to use the tools of research to figure out what it is that makes human life flourish. What produces joy? And when they, took, when they look at what distinguishes quite happy people from less happy people, that's what they were looking at, they find that there is, there is the one factor, one difference that consistently separates those two groups. And what I'd like to uh, ask you to do here just real quick for one moment is, if you don't mind, turn to the person next to you and see if you can guess what that one factor is real quick. And then we'll come back and talk about it. What's the one factor, one the one difference that distinguishes more happy people from less happy people. Real quick, discuss it. You guys think you know? Anybody think they know? Here, let me give you, let me give you the answer here. You guys ready? Here's the answer. Uh, it's, not, it's not income. It's not how much money you have. It's not health. It's not what kind of shape your body's in. It's not security. It's not attractiveness. It is not IQ. It is not uh, career success. What distinguishes consistently happier people from less happy people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships with other human beings. Isn't that interesting? That's just that's kind of that's a secular study. Anybody get that? Anybody? Wow, there's there's one person. Two, two, three. Okay, we're gonna you're gonna stay in here until you get it. Okay? So if I have to preach until six o'clock, go ahead and lock the doors, ushers. You're staying in here until you get it. Uh, that's why in Genesis two eighteen, after God said, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, all the way down through, and then he says, It is not good for what? For man to be alone, but we don't get it. We don't, we don't seem to get it. And, and that early church, they did get it. Let me give you four things that they did in between. They stuck together. They stuck together. Community, verse 14. All of these with one accord. First mention of a car in the Bible. That was bad, wasn't it? All of these with one accord, Honda Accord. Okay, verse 15, moving right along. The company of persons was in all 120. Exodus 6, 7, when you look in the Old Testament, all the way Old Testament, New Testament, Exodus 6, 7, listen to what it says here. It says, you will be my people and I will be your God. You probably have heard that before. In other words, what he's saying is salvation brings us into intimacy with God and with others. Salvation brings us into intimacy with God and others. Ecclesiastes 
4, 9 through 12, uh, very eloquently put uh, the writer here. Who's the writer of Ecclesiastes? Anybody? Solomon, yeah. It's a pretty depressing book for the most part, but there's a lot of great insight in this book. I like the book. It's kind of really... Over and over again, you see this meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless. And everything under the sun that is in life apart from God is meaningless. But he talks about, in this this text, he says, two are better than one. Then he goes very eloquently and talks about the benefits of, of community. How many, and you can ask the person next to you real quick, how many one another's? are in just the New Testament. For instance, it says, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another. How many one another's do you think are in just the New Testament? Real quick, ask the person next to you, see if they know. See if you can guess. How many would say about about 10? 10, show of hands. 20? 30? 40? How about 55? Okay, there you go. Okay, I did. I just did a rough guess. 55 one another's New Testament. Love one another, encourage one another, serve one another. So it's talking about that there is this amazing interaction doing life together in community. So if you ever thought you could do life apart from a local church like Desert Breeze, it's not consistent with what the Bible teaches. That you're either not walking with Jesus or there's something messed up with your your understanding of what Scripture teaches. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's interesting. And what's interesting is that American uh, sociologists tell us that we are becoming, which one, more connected or more and more less connected? Yeah, less connected. Isn't that interesting? In spite of all the technological advances. And therefore, because we are less and less connected, that we are mired in psychological issues. There's a book that came out a number of years ago. I know that they teach it in the slam class. I know that uh, Don and Darren teach it in our slam class. They talk about uh, bowling alone is a, over the last decade, this sociology book, a very popular book. And that's what he's saying. And he says the trend is going, in a, in a, going backwards terribly. And the church is kind of uh, always has been the community that has brought people together, but the church isn't doing very well in this. And I really believe that what sociologists say, yeah, we are being mired in psychological issues because of our disconnectedness, but I believe that that's a manifestation of our spiritual disconnectedness. We actually say that we know Christ, we're walking with Him, but everything about our lives horizontally is proving us otherwise. Because I'm convinced... That the gospel liberates individuals, but it does so both through and for deep community. So the gospel is going to liberate you, but it's going to do it through and for deep community. You hear me say this a lot. We, we say it around here that what we do here on Sunday mornings, this is the catalyst for life change. That um, our, our time together, our heartfelt worship, biblical anointed teaching, preaching of God's word is the catalyst for life change. But real life change happens best in, in small groups, in small groups. And the Bible confirms that over and over again. Psychology confirms that over and over again. And so it's in these small groups that we not only, we both through and for deep community, that's how the gospel liberates us. In fact, I'm convinced... That vertical health is seen in greater horizontal health through reaching and relating. In other words, 
And I've seen this in my own life. Once you've tasted fellowship with God, once you've tasted fellowship with God, you not only begin to relate to others differently, in fact, the Bible says you will love your enemies, but you have to want anyone else to care, anyone else that you care about to know this fellowship too. Once you've tasted of the fellowship with God, not only do you relate to others differently, and that's a sign that you really are tasting of His goodness, but you're wanting to reach out to more and more people so that they can experience what you experience in your life. Otherwise, you're not experiencing it. You're just kind of going through the motions saying that you experience it, but the truth is told by your ability to relate and reach others with the message of the gospel. And that's what you see happening in this uh, early church. They stuck together. They were connected. They had a sense of community. And uh, it's in community. It's in community is where you're going to have your, your needs met and where you're going to have those rough edges <laughs> raked off. <laughs> in fact, if you get into a group and there's no conflict, that's an unhealthy group. Does that sound crazy? If you don't have a little bit of conflict in a group, it's just pseudo-community. They're just patting each other on the head. Well, let's just be happy and let's just ignore our problems and let's not be honest about anything. Let's just placate and patronize everybody. And No, in fact, if you're in a good, healthy group, there's going to be some conflict. You're going to go through the tunnel of chaos. And that's, that's part of the process of God knocking off the edges. If you, here's what I've learned is that oftentimes when I get really kind of ticked off, it's, I love my wife because she's helped me so tremendously to, to see God more clearly. But... Uh, I get real ticked off at certain people, and I'll look over her and go, that person really drives me crazy. And she'll go, well, the reason why they drive you crazy is because they're just like you. <laughs> and then I will say, well, and you drive me crazy too, okay? You're just like them. I just want to be all by myself. Yeah, and you'll be weird, okay? You're really weird. And that's why we are becoming more and more weird in our society today. Because we don't know how to, to reach and relate to people. We need to be in those environments where there's stuff being stirred up within us. And then we, we don't cut and run. I've got to find a better group. I'm going to find the perfect group. There's no perfect group. You know why? Because they're made up of people just like you. And you're messed up. And I am too. And that's what I find interesting about Desert Breeze. I love the authenticity that we have here. Some of you know that we're... I don't think we're too authentic, but maybe too authentic for some of your friends because your friends came and they didn't come back. <laughs> Those people are way too weird. They're too authentic. I just want to kind of go through the motions and pretend that everything's fine. And no, We don't do that here. Things aren't fine. We're all struggling. But guess what? It's about Him. It's not about us. So we focus on Him. We get to know Him. We love Him. So we're here to help each other get to know him and it's for his glory. And so they not only stuck together, but then they prayed together. They prayed together. Notice what it says, verse 14, devoting themselves to prayer. And you also see in verse 24, and they prayed. Did you know that according to Matthew 18, 19 through 20, this is a verse that many of you probably quoted if you've been around the church any length of time, is that where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. If you, if two... As, you know, agree as touching any one thing. I think it's kind of King James language that I'm using there. Uh, then, then I'm there and I'm going to do something. What is he saying there? That there is a di- dynamic of God's presence that, that is experienced in community that you cannot experience outside of community. That's what it's saying. Um, James 5.16, it says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. Some of you aren't healed because you aren't confessing your faults to others and allowing them to pray for you. 
You need to be able to be in a safe environment where you can say, man, my marriage isn't going well. In fact, I'm really tempted in, in these areas of my life. I'm struggling. I just need a lot of help. And you need to have people that are in your corner that come and rally behind you and just support you and love you. And we have a whole lot of small groups that do that here. We do. I mean, it's, it's fabulous. In fact, we're, we're kind of probably beating the odds here at Desert Breeze when it comes to the small groups and the number of people that are involved in small groups. And we want to continue to beat the odds and continue to go in that direction. But that's, that's part of it. So let me ask you this. Let's start at home. Men, do you pray with your wives? Um, I have to confess, I didn't always. And a few years ago, my wife was going through her menopause, hormone hell. It was. Believe me. It was hard. I had a full head of hair before we started. That's not true. But it was hard. And I was a jerk. She was the most civil between the two of us. And she lovingly said to me, you know, it seems as though you pray for the whole world. She didn't actually say it like that, but... (laughs) But she said, you, you, you can pray for the whole world. You pray for a lot of people. You minister and you do a fabulous job. But man, I really need for you to minister to me. And it just like hit me right in the gut. I was like, what a phony. <laughs> I should be doing that first and then out of the overflow of that. Then I need to be ministering to others. It was convicting. So since then, we pray consistently together. It hasn't been, you know, it's been real hard to, con- to maintain that, but it's been really good for me. And I thank, her, I thank God for her for, for bringing that to my attention. I needed that. So, men, do you pray with your wives? And, uh, and do you pray with your kids, parents? And then let me ask you this. Do you have a few group of people that you can get together with and you can pray with? That's what they were doing. If you're not a small group, you probably don't, but maybe... You could. You need to. You need to get together with a few. That's what they were doing. So they stuck together, community. They prayed together, prayer. They studied together the Bible. Did you notice what he said in verse 16? The scripture had to be fulfilled. And this is Peter. He gets up and he says, for it is written. Let me tell you just a little bit about God's word. Jesus said this when he was being tempted. He said, man cannot live on, on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is he saying? There's more to taking care of your life than the physical You have a spiritual need and you are desperate to hear the voice of the Father each and every day speaking to you. That becomes bread to your soul, to your life. When was the last time you heard Him speak to you through His Word? It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, God's Word, all uh, all Scripture is, is inspired. The word literally means God breathed. When I study this, this is God's breath upon my life. That's how close you are to the living God. I was reading it last night. I, I had his, the sense of His presence in my room with me. Things begin to pop off this page. And I can't say that they always happen that way. Sometimes I read it and I feel like banging my head. Ah! I can't make heads or tails out of this. But I don't stop reading it. I just can't understand it. I'm not very smart. I'm just not going to read it anymore. No. I keep reading it. And I get around people that will help me to read it. So you study his word. And then they work together. They work together ministry. 
And you see this, they're, they're, they're trying to get another leader in there and they're really working on a good foundation because the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on them. And there's going to be some amazing things happen. And we're going to learn next week on what that means. The work of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? They got the list of the disciples and Peter stood up and then they got this leadership thing going on and then they're all working together. And they prayed. Notice verse 24. And they cast lots. Verse 23. And they put forward too. So this is everybody. They're all working together. Let me read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis and then we're going to wrap it up. A quote from C.S. Lewis. This is a profound quote. He says, uh, In each of my friends there is something that that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, now C.S. Lewis was a part of a, three guys. One was J.R. Tolkien. And so Charles dies, and so he's thinking, I can get more of, of Ronald. But he realized he had less of Ronald now that Charles was dead. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. For from, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, that he was thinking, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves, Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. We possess each friend not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this friendship, in this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven. For every soul, seeing him in her her own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, Holy, holy, holy to one another. Isaiah 6 3. The more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. You have something to bring to the table here. And without you, we won't have it. You are a unique, one-of-a-kind original. And there is a dimension of God that I can see in you that I won't be able to see in anybody else. There's an aspect of who He is and, and, and His beauty and His glory. And so as we join together in this larger setting and then we get together in smaller groups, there is something that happens. Now, this is what keeps us from community is that we don't understand grace and we're not resting in grace. We have pride or fear that dominates our lives. Pride that says, I don't need others. That's the American way. Or fear, man, if they really knew who I was and knew what I struggle with. But see, that you don't understand grace. Look at my statement on the end. The assurance of God's sacrificial love on the cross gives me the humility to see my need for community, but also the confidence to not be overly needy of community. You know the reason why we get offended? Because we're too stinking needy. I go to a church and I'm easily offended. It's because, because I don't have all of my sense of identity in the cross. It's in what you say about me. That's why I'm ticked off. I can't believe you said that to me. But I can overcome that in direct proportion to understanding. My identity is not in what they say. But it's in who Jesus says I am. And what he has accomplished on the cross once and for all eternity. That is amazing. That is the grace of God. 
So that when I get into community, it's not about me. My heart is filled up with who God is and his glory. I so desperately want to stir up that appetite within you. And you'll want to do the same thing for me. What an amazing sense of his presence we can experience through community. And that's what they're doing. And guess what? Ten days later, the Holy Spirit's poured out on It's amazing. That's where we're headed in the story. That's what I want to happen right here at Desert Breeze. Stand with me for closing prayer. Did you notice that last statement? St. Augustine, there is no saint without a past. That's all of us. We all have a past. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me. No towering here. There shouldn't be any towering or superiority in a small group. And then no sinner without a future. No cowering. Humble confidence. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. It has uh, nourished our hearts. We are beginning to see you a little bit more clearly. Our hearts long for you. Nothing else will do. Lord, bring healing by your grace so that we will want to reach out to others and relate to those that we have a hard time relating to. All for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.